everybody. I'm your host, Lisa Shield. Welcome to Dating Without Drama, where I give you my unique take on everything related to men, love, dating, and romantic relationships. My practical yet spiritual approach to getting emotionally naked and attracting what I call a guardian of your soul will be music to your ears. So let's get started. Hello, everybody. It is wonderful to be here today. First, I'm going to share a little uh, story about where I've been. My husband and I both had his and hers operations, and we decided to rent an Airbnb in Malibu and Whoever thought that one of the most romantic things a couple could do would be to go away together and have operations. I had mine on a Monday and then Benjamin had a full shoulder replacement, what's called a reverse shoulder replacement on Thursday. And we spent a week in Malibu together just recovering. It was so beautiful. I I don't even have words to express how incredible this experience was because Benjamin and I were both, uh, well, I had a full hysterectomy. And what was so amazing about that was it was laparoscopic. And because I was doing this, you know, I knew my husband would be there and he would be by my side. I had no fear whatsoever about doing it. I went into it and I just thought everything's going to be fine. And it was, it was miraculous. Modern medicine is phenomenal. It was laparoscopic. I have two tiny little incisions on either side of my abdomen. I was sent home right after the surgery. I had, you know, discomfort. And of course it was, you know, it was uncomfortable the first day. The next day I took a couple of Advil or a couple of Tylenol and an Advil, however that works. And I was literally fine. We went out to our favorite sushi restaurant in Los Angeles, Sugarfish. And we remembered what good sushi was like because we don't get good sushi in New Mexico. I felt great. We ran some errands. We went to a movie. We actually walked out of two different movies. We tend to walk out of more movies, I think, than we sit through. And it was wonderful. It was just wonderful. And I would hate to think of what that experience would have been like if I hadn't had my husband there with me. So I know that it's very easy to get caught up in whatever is happening right in front of us in our lives and not look at the bigger picture. We can often just keep relegating, finding the guardian of our soul to the back burner and thinking, oh, well, it'll happen when it happens. And, you know, we muster up a little bit of courage. We get back online. We see a few of the same faces and we get off just as quickly. But this really is something that for many, many, many of us needs to be a serious and concerted effort or it will not happen. So I want to talk a little bit about my story. I want to share how I became a love coach. I thought that that would be kind of a fun topic today for everybody. It's a very easy one to talk about for me because it's my story 
I think it's important for anybody who's been following me, who knows my work, anyone who sees me today and hears that I have a miraculous, <laughs> beautiful 20-year guardian of my soul relationship with my husband, Benjamin, to know that this is not how it always was for me. This is not the way things started. I really want you all to know that when I was young and all through high school, my mother was very, very ill. She was dying from the time I was about 12 until I was 15. My mother was dying of breast cancer. And she was also just a very, very frustrated and damaged woman because my father cheated on her and had left her for another woman. So my mother had a lot of anger and she was dealing with major life issues, death and dying. And of course, all of that affected me as a child. And I had almost no real love and support and guidance as a little girl, I had nobody to talk to or go to. And I was also being bullied and teased in school. I was very introverted. And because my dad was an alcoholic, I was also codependent. I walked on eggshells. I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel like anybody really liked me, not even my own mother. And so growing up, I was incredibly insecure and codependent. So I want to put both of those things out there. I grew up with deep, deep, deep codependent issues and feelings of tremendous insecurity. I never felt like I fit in. I always felt like an outcast. I was always overthinking everything I said or did. Oh my God, that was the wrong thing to say. And why did you say that? And oh my God, you're so stupid. These were the tapes that were playing constantly in my head. And a lot of that was also being reflected back to me and the people around me. I was judged. I was criticized. I was bullied and teased. And I just felt awkward and insecure and like I never fit in. On the flip side, I did have a lot of opportunities and privilege. I came from a family that had a certain amount of affluence, and I was very fortunate to always have lovely things, beautiful clothes, and wonderful vacations. My family loved to travel, and I got to see some incredible places when I was young. And that was really at a time when nobody traveled. This was very, very unusual for someone to travel the way that I did when I was a girl. In fact, my grandmother, when my mom died, when I graduated high school, my high school graduation present was a world cruise. I accompanied her on a two-month cruise around the world, which was fabulous. So I had a lot of privilege and opportunity, but that didn't take away the fact that I was insecure and codependent and felt like nobody really liked me and like I didn't fit in. To top it off, my father was an alcoholic and an addict in you know many senses of the word. And I did not get along with his wife, his, his second wife at all. So I felt like I had almost no relationship with him. 
So I had very little parenting. And then my grandmother passed away of endometrial cancer when I was 21. So I was pretty much left on my own, except, you know, I have one brother and that was really it. My father wound up having a child with his third wife, who is in her early 20s now. So there's a vast age difference between the two of us. So I have a much, much, much younger half-sister, and I have an older brother. That's really my entire family. I remember when I was a little girl, I remember I would spend time staring into the mirror and I would fantasize. I had this fantasy that I think a lot of little girls probably have, especially little girls who don't fit in, who don't feel liked, who don't get attention from boys, who don't feel pretty. I was actually a bit overweight. I've always struggled with my weight and gone up and down, but I would stare in the mirror and I remember telling myself one day, you are going to meet the most wonderful man and he is going to really see how special you are and he is going to fall in love with you and he is going to treat you like a queen. This man will do everything in the world for you and he will adore you. He will be a man who you admire and respect and look up to. Your life is going to be wonderful. And I used to tell myself that over and over again, just standing in the mirror. So I never, ever, ever really had a boyfriend. There may have been men in my early life, you know, all the way up through college in a way. There were men, I know, guys who were interested in me, but I was so insecure that I really did push those guys away. So anyone who tried to get close to me, it was impossible for me to believe that a guy would actually like me. Even when those opportunities did come up, and I can think of a few, but I pushed them away because I was so deeply insecure. I didn't even know what to do with that kind of attention. I didn't know how to be around boys. I didn't know what to say to them. And I really had no relationship with my father or my brother growing up. It wasn't until I graduated. I mean, I had some interactions with guys in college and I started to see that, yes, there were guys who were interested in me, but none of them, you know, for whatever reason, whether I was so avoidant and I just couldn't see their good qualities or what was going on, I don't know. But I couldn't let any of these guys in, none of them. You know, I found fault with every single one of them and I pushed them away. No guy was ever good enough for me until I got to grad school. So I studied photojournalism as an undergrad and then I went to Brooks Institute for my master's in photography. And in the very first week of my very first class, I met my, the man who would become my future husband. This was the first man who I thought was exciting and interesting and intelligent, funny. And we became kind of the it couple in our class at Brooks. We wound up spending all of our time together doing our projects together when we were in school. 
And we also wound up dropping out. We went from Brooks to Los Angeles and we got a studio in the new arts district, the downtown area. All of the warehouses were being converted into living spaces at that time. We set ourselves up as photographers together. It was a very, very, very exciting time. It was exciting to have a boyfriend. It was exciting to be studying photography. And it was exciting to be among the first people moving into downtown LA. And so my life seemed like it was really becoming exciting. But Underneath all of this was something that I just couldn't see. And that was that my husband, he was a pathological liar. He had serious ongoing issues with money. He lied. He borrowed money from other people and then would spin the whole scenario and make the other person wrong. And he would never pay those people back. So he burned a lot of bridges. I didn't see any of this at the time. When you're seeing this spread out over a long period of time, it's easy to make excuses. It's also easy to put on blinders and see what you want to see and hear what you want to hear. And so I never put the pieces together when I was in the relationship. I didn't. I couldn't see what was going on. I knew something wasn't right. And I knew that we were stuck. I I just felt like we were constantly going back and having the same arguments and the same discussions. But I really couldn't see the bigger picture. Like I was too in it. And the other thing was that I was so dependent on him Now, feeling like I didn't have anybody in my life, that I had no one, not my mother, not my grandmother, not my father, and I barely had a relationship with my brother. And so my ex-husband became my anchor in the world. And I felt that for a long time, I could just focus on everything that was good about us and the relationship and ignore the things that weren't. At one point, it became so clear to me, and I saw that this wasn't really right, that there were bigger issues. I wound up breaking up with him for a year, but in that year, nothing changed in my love life. I didn't meet any other guys. I you know, I felt better because I wasn't with him and I was focusing on myself and building my own photography career. But I didn't feel like I was moving forward in any way, shape or form in my love life. So we started talking again and very quickly fell back into our relationship. At one point, I decided to leave Los Angeles because we had a massive earthquake. It was terrifying. And my building there, actually, my building in downtown LA kind of almost cracked in half. It was that bad. Luckily, believe it or not, my dad was on business in San Francisco and he had invited me on a very rare occasion to fly out to see him. And so I jumped on a plane and I flew out to see my dad. And that's when the major earthquake hit. But then I flew back and there were aftershocks that were pretty scary. And so 
part of me knew that it was a good idea to leave my ex and get out of there again and go to Italy. So I went to Milan to shoot fashion. It was partly to get away from him and it was partly because of the earthquake. So this is where my story gets very, very interesting. I flew to Milan and my ex and I continued to stay in touch and all. When I'd come back to the States, I would see him. About a year later, there was this big writer strike and he had been doing a lot of portraits for magazines and that came to an end because of the writer strike and so he decided to come to Italy. And unfortunately, we wound up spending almost another 7 years together. There was a part of our life that was amazing. Like we were shooting fashion and living in Milan and we had all these cool creative friends and from the outside it all looked pretty good. The problem was that in many ways, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, we were not growing. And my insecurity, my deep, deep insecurity was causing me not to move ahead. Even in my fashion career, I was too afraid to show my work. I was afraid of being rejected and criticized. And I was watching my friends who were not in some ways as talented as me speeding past me on the freeway. They were getting jobs. They were moving up and I was stuck because I was too afraid to really put myself out there. So what was being echoed in my love life was also echoed in my work life. This insecurity, this inability to believe in myself and move myself forward. On top of it, my husband and I had ongoing financial problems. He would fly back to the states and he would tell me, "Oh, I have jobs and I'm getting work." He made all kinds of excuses for why he wasn't working in Milan. He'd fly to Paris and he'd say, "Oh, I'm working in Paris." But somehow I never saw the money. He never was able to contribute to the rent and to the expenses. He had enough to get by. but there was something really going on there that i didn't want to see one time i gave him my credit card because he said he needed you know to get back to the states so that he could work and then he was going to send me some money he never sent me the money and the day before he came home i got a letter in the mail from my credit card telling me i was so far over my limit that i needed to cut up the credit card So that was the really the beginning of me just saying I can't do this anymore. Simultaneously, my career was so bad, and this really is the interesting part. My career was so bad and I was so stuck. I had hit bottom and I decided to go into the dark room and I was printing and printing and printing for like 3 months. All I did was print pictures and I had a little bitty book that someone had given me called the success principles or the principles of success or the laws of success and it was by Paramahansa Yogananda. it was tiny and it would have like a spiritual principle and then maybe two or three little pages about it and then another one and another one you know compassion kindness forgiveness whatever i would read a few pages of this little book and i'd go into the dark room <laughs> print and i'd be sitting there you know and i literally was in the dark 
I was in there rocking these trays and watching the chemicals and the pictures develop. And I was processing my life. And there was this voice, almost like a voice of a therapist. I mean, it was just incredible, but there was this voice in the back of my head and it was almost asking me questions like a therapist would. And somebody had once said something to me. And this person said, look, if you hear something one time from somebody like feedback, it might be their projection. They may be projecting on you, but if you've been hearing a particular message over and over and over again, it's something you need to look at. So one time can be somebody just projecting on you. But if you're hearing a message more than once from several different people, it's probably something that you need to hear and really listen to. So I asked myself, well, what are the things that I've been hearing that I haven't wanted to hear? The first thing that popped into my mind was, Lisa, why are you so defensive? Now, if you say, why are you so defensive to a defensive person, they just get more defensive. And defensiveness is self-explanation. So when a person is being defensive, you're not hearing feedback, you're not listening to what someone's telling you, you're explaining why that isn't true. Somebody might say, look, what you said was hurtful. And then a defensive person would say, well, I didn't think it was hurtful. I mean, I was just telling you the truth. If you get hurt, like that's up to you. I was speaking from my heart. But what you're not hearing was maybe there was something about your tone of voice or something that felt judgmental to that person. You're not hearing what the other person is saying. You're just being defensive and you're not receptive to feedback and you need to be right. And so I started to ask myself, well, why would people be saying that? Like, what does it mean to be defensive? And I realized I needed feedback. My life wasn't moving forward. There was there were things I was missing that I wasn't doing right. And I needed to start to be willing to hear feedback from other people because my way wasn't working. Now, I knew that I was defensive because I had been a target growing up and I had had very little positive reinforcement, but I needed to learn how to listen and accept feedback from people and not take that feedback as criticism, but be able to hear what the other person was saying so that I could grow and I could start to see why I was stuck. What was I doing, right? And so that was the first thing. And I told myself, you know, this goes back to Don Miguel Ruiz, who later became one of my mentors and teachers. And Don Miguel talks about don't take anything personally. And that was a huge lesson for me. I started to crack it open when I was in the dark room in Milan, but I really, really, really was able to conquer that behavior when I worked with Don Miguel. It was not an overnight thing. And partially the reason for that was because my father being an alcoholic, addicts by nature are narcissists. If you see in the AA big book, one of the things that says there is that addicts are narcissists in the extreme. 
So I had learned from my father how to be defensive and narcissistic. I was really becoming a narcissist. And this is how I started to break that. And I told myself, look, if someone gives you feedback, even if it stings, from now on, you're going to say to that person, thank you for that feedback. I really appreciate you telling me. And then when I was alone, I could cry, I could process, I could journal, and I could really think about what that person was saying and what they were trying to say to me and what was important for me to hear in a safe space. But I wouldn't react in the moment. I wouldn't say anything until I got much better at learning how to have a dialogue and ask more questions. Well, what are you saying? Why are you saying that? You know, what is it you feel I could do differently? So I learned later how to start to ask questions like that. But the first thing was just to stop being reactive stop taking it personally so that I could then digest it and be able to process what this person had said to me. And that gave me the freedom to navigate my own feelings and emotions without reacting. That was one piece of this. Another thing that I asked myself in the darkroom was, why are you always so sad? A girlfriend of mine, we had gone to play miniature golf and she had some photos sitting out on her table and a friend of hers picked them up and was looking at them and she commented on me and she asked my friend, she said, is your friend always so sad? And the truth was, I was sad. I was very sad. And in the darkroom, I asked myself, Lisa, why are you so sad? And I got an answer. Again, immediately an answer came back to me. And the answer was, I'm so sad because when my mom was dying of cancer, I told myself I would always be sad. And I remember saying that to myself. I literally made up the agreement that I would always be sad. Because I had lost my innocence, I had lost my youth. Most young, you know, little girls don't have to watch their mother die for three years. And I told myself I wasn't like other people because I had experienced death at such an early age. And so that was the agreement I made. And in that moment, I said to myself, Lisa, you made that up. I mean, that's what you told yourself. And now all these years later, you're still sad. And I don't want to be sad, but that is not the life I want to live. And so I said, if I made that up, I'm going to make up a different story. I'm going to make up that I'm wiser because my mother died when I was young. And I was like, I like that. I can be wise. That's way better than being sad. And then my next thought was, oh my God, we make it all up. I realized in that moment of enlightenment in the dark room that life is a story we're telling ourselves. Things are happening and we're making up all these agreements about the way life is. We're making all of these stories up. And I had made up some really sad stories that made me a victim in my own life. And I decided right then and there that I was done being a victim. I was no longer going to be a victim in my life. I was no longer going to blame other people for my unhappiness. 
I was no longer going to feel sorry for myself or sad. And I told myself that no matter what, if I told a story about some event in my life, I was going to put a positive spin on it. I would find a positive outcome, even if it was a sad story. And I'm not talking about what is called toxic positivity, which is when we just walk around and we're so happy and everything's great. And, you know, I'm going to find the positive in everything. No, I believe in a much more balanced truth. I can say to you in one moment that it was a tragedy that I watched my mother dying when I was a child. And I can also tell you that this is why I became the woman I am today. My mother was angry and unhappy with herself and her life. She took it out on me. And when I was a little girl, it was very oppressive for me to be growing up with a mother like that. And as hard as it was to lose her, I also see many women who I coach, many of them are my clients, who have very difficult relationships with their mothers. And even today, as grown women, they're still dealing with mothers who hold them back and who they are now still allowing to control their lives. So in many ways, maybe my mother and I would have been able to heal our relationship. I like to think that we would have done that. But I also know that in some ways I had a lot more breathing room because I wasn't constantly walking on eggshells with her. So I can tell you both sides of this story and both things are true there's a balance. I'm able to see both the positive and the negative, And I choose to be the victor, the hero of my own stories. So I made up this agreement when I was in the darkroom. And then I kept getting better and better. I kept feeling more and more confident and ready to move forward in my life. And while I was in that darkroom, I also did something that was inconceivable to me. I started to imagine a life without my husband. I started to think about if our relationship ended, my biggest fear was that he was going to figure out that I wasn't going to ever get my life together. And what I started to realize was we were kind of on a sinking ship. We were holding each other back. And that in order for me to move forward with my life, I had to leave. And I started to imagine a life without him. I could see for the first time that it wasn't all me, that there were some real issues and problems at his end, and they were holding me back and holding us back. We were incapable of solving them. And as I started to pull away, move away in my consciousness from my ex-husband, I started to realize that I didn't want to stay and try to fix these things with him. Shortly after I had that realization, he and I were having another discussion, another argument about money. I had been paying the rent and for six months I stopped. I just said, I'm not paying any more of the bills. You need to figure this out. You need to be responsible and you need to come up with the money. He kept making one idle promise after another until we were talking and it literally hit me. 
that we were having the identical conversation we'd been having 13 years earlier when we first met about money. He was making promise after promise. Oh, I'm going to go to my grandmother. She'll give me a loan. I know she'll be happy to do this and whatever. Well, you know, his grandparents had loaned us some money in the past, but it wasn't happening. He wasn't getting money. I actually found out later because he lied to me. He had told me that the photo agency that represented him in Paris had owed him a lot of money. And he lied, boldface lied to me and told me they had filed chapter 11 and owed him a whole bunch of money that he, you know, and he was waiting to get that. So he was always waiting to get money that never came. And I stopped in the middle of our conversation. And I said, look, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. I'm going to go home. I'm going to pack my things. I'm going to leave. And then when you get this figured out, we can talk and see if we want to continue or if we want to go our separate ways. And I don't know if it was a couple of days or a week later, I left Milan and I left my ex-husband. And the day I left, our phone was turned off because we hadn't paid the bill and our rent hadn't been paid in six months. And I was done. I never looked back. We did subsequently wind up separating. He wound up stealing some money from me, which he hadn't done before. And we got divorced. And the saddest thing or maybe the best thing in some ways about our divorce. I remember I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I've now, where I come back to with my current husband. I came here right after I left my first husband and I went to file the divorce papers. And when I drove up to the law office, it was pouring rain. And I went inside to give them the papers. And when I walked outside, there was literally a double rainbow across the sky. And I just thought, you know, I'm, I don't make up a lot of stories, but I thought, you know, that's supposed to be a really good omen and I'm going to take it. So I filed the papers, but I remember when the lawyer said to me, you don't have any communal property? And I said, no, none. And she said, after 13 years? And I said, nope, nothing. And she said, not even a joint bank account or a credit card? And I said, nope, zip, zero. In fact, we had even gone down to a discount jewelry store in downtown LA. And he and I had both individually paid $60 for our gold wedding bands. I bought mine, he bought his, nothing. So it was a blessing and a curse, but thank God my uncle Sid, who was a lawyer, he got us to sign an agreement before we got married. So he protected any money, any property I had before I met him. I left my ex-husband. I spent some time in Santa Fe. This is where I discovered Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of The Four Agreements. I started doing some work with him and with my dear, dear friend and coach, Rita Rivera. Rita has now been coaching for me in my program, and she is amazing. She was one of the first people to start 
working with Don Miguel. She taught all over the world with him side by side and then came on to coach with me in my program. So I met Rita. I met Don Miguel. I started doing all of this wonderful work on myself. And one of the things I told myself was, Lisa, you don't have another 13 years to waste. By that time, I was 34 and I wanted to get this solved. So everything I did from that point forward was in service to finding true love, to learning to love myself, to get to know myself, to be able to be conscious, awake, aware, and to have dominion over my emotional process. This was my journey to learn how not to take things personally and become non-reactive to what other people say and do. Now, again, that is not an overnight process. Trust me, (laughs) we can't see our own blind spots. And it can be very, very challenging to look in the mirror and to have other people reflect back to us the things that we don't like about ourselves. So it's taken years, years of personal growth work. I got my master's in spiritual psychology. I've worked with great mentors and teachers, and I have been devoted and committed to learning how to become a woman who can love unconditionally. So I did all this work on myself. I spent about six years working nonstop, and then suddenly around comes my 40th birthday, and that was a wake-up call. I couldn't believe it. I was going to turn 40, and I was still single. And I lived in Los Angeles, California, and there are more stunningly beautiful women in that city than almost anywhere on the planet. And I thought, whoa, this sucks. I mean, now what am I going to do? I sat back and I started to really think about this. And I realized that, you know, all the work I had done, it had helped me know and love myself better, but I still wasn't attracting quality men. And so I decided to face this issue head on. And at the time, there weren't love coaches. There was nobody out there. I mean, maybe there was, you know, there were some outdated books or whatever. Internet dating was really just getting started. I didn't know who to go to for advice. And I got to say, it's in my nature (laughs) to figure things out on my own. When I set my mind to something... I'm going to do it. And so I decided that I was going to put myself online. I was going to use all of the things I had learned with Don Miguel and in my spiritual psych work and all. And I was going to apply all of that to the dating process. I was sitting in a 12-step meeting one day, and I was simultaneously reading The Power of Now, like reading it, at this, not while I was in the meeting, but it was a meditation meeting. And that was kind of echoing, you know, bouncing around in my head, you know, this whole idea of being in the now. And as I was meditating, I had an incredible breakthrough. I had always thought that unconditional love was an ideal, but it wasn't real. It was something we strived for, but could never attain. And suddenly in my mind, the pieces came together and I realized 
that I thought that maybe I had to live a thousand lifetimes and become like this perfect person to have a truly unconditionally loving relationship. And it hit me that no, like I could have this. This is real. This is out there. This is not a dream. And I started to see that if we only have the eternal now, if this moment is the only moment that's real, and this moment and this moment, we can do it now. We can have it in this lifetime. This is real. And I also knew that whenever I followed spiritual principles, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, thoughtfulness, patience, whatever, gratitude, whenever I followed those guidelines for life, I felt great. I knew I was on the right path. I felt good. And when I didn't make choices and decisions based on spiritual principles, I never felt good. When I was being selfish and self-centered and trying to get something, right? Get my needs met from other people. So it was a revelation to me. And I started to see that this is real. It's something we can have and we can have it in this lifetime. And so I reverse engineered it. I said, well, who do I have to be? in order to attract unconditional love. And I realized that I would have to first, everything works in reverse. So we can't have something until we're first willing to give it. So I was going to have to be willing to go out on dates and I would have to find a man who I truly felt I could love and accept exactly the way he is without wanting to fix him or change him or whatever. And so I proceeded to go on 95 first dates. And on the 96th date, I met my future husband, Benjamin. And when I looked into Benjamin's eyes, my very first thought was, oh my God, this is the kindest man I've ever met. I could feel his kindness and I knew it was real. And I knew that it was the kind of kindness that was conscious, that was deliberate, that was intentional. He wasn't nice. There's a big difference between someone who's nice and someone who is kind. And I knew when I sat down across from him on that day that this man wasn't like any other man I'd ever known. I had no idea where it would go. I had no idea if he'd ever call me again. You know, I didn't project. I didn't start planning the wedding, thinking about a future for us because I was completely grounded and in the moment and open to whatever unfolded. Benjamin went home. He took his profile down the night we met and he waited for me to come back. I had business in Vietnam. I was importing from Vietnam and Mexico at the time. It was a three and a half week trip. He marked it on his calendar. And the day I got back, he wrote to me and invited me out again. And 20 years later, he is the guardian of my soul. Three months into knowing me, Benjamin said to me, you should be a coach or a therapist. 
And I said, why do you say that? I felt so proud that he was thinking about me and that he saw me and I respected his perspective and his insights. And he said, because this is your passion. This is the thing that you talk about, personal transformation. You may have been excited about importing at one time, but that's not who you are now. And I heard him and I was getting ready to finish my second year of my master's program, which, by the way, we read one of the four books Benjamin wrote with his best friend, Richard Carlson, who wrote Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. We read Benjamin's book, Handbook for the Heart, in my course, which was unbelievable. And he said, this is your passion. This is really what you should do. So I called an ex-boyfriend who had expressed interest in my business. I said, you want to buy it? He bought it. And I enrolled in coaching training. And this has been the most wonderful decision of my life. I knew when I started that I wanted to coach love and relationships, and I wanted to show other women how to find what we have. My husband and I have a truly unconditionally loving relationship. In that book, Handbook for the Heart, Benjamin wrote the most beautiful essay I've ever read on love. I urge you to read it. It's absolutely extraordinary. It will take your breath away. He is an incredible writer. In fact, he even writes the online dating profiles for the women in my course. And the men who read them say, I fell in love with her when I read her profile. So in that beautiful piece that Benjamin wrote for Handbook for the Heart, he was talking about how two people who are in a loving romantic relationship should be. And he wrote the words, we should be guardians of each other's souls. When he wrote those words, he'd never been the guardian of someone's soul, and he'd never found the guardian of his soul. But 20 years later, that's exactly what we found. So that's why I became and how I became a love coach. This wasn't easy. I struggled. I felt invisible. I never went to a prom or a high school dance. And I was codependent and deeply insecure. And yet for 20 years, I've had the relationship most women dream of having. When I stood back and I asked myself on, my, on the precipice of my 40th birthday, what is love? How do we find it? And what kind of woman do I need to be to attract the kind of man I really want? I realized that this isn't about our youth, our beauty, our success, the color of our skin. If any of those things were what mattered, all of the celebrities would have the best relationships. And we know they don't because this has to come from the heart. It has to be real and true love, true kindness, true compassion. There's no strategy. There's no game. There's no technique to get there. So if you love what I've just shared, 
and you want to find the guardian of your soul, please go to lisashield.com, click the button, watch my free 45-minute presentation. If you like what you hear, then let's jump on a call so a member of my team or me can show you how to do this in your own life. Don't waste any more time trying to figure this out on your own. All you're doing is wasting time. Could you figure it out? Yeah, maybe. But why would you spend a year or three years or 10 years in research mode when you could get a solution now, find the guardian of your soul and have the life you're longing for now? Please like and rate my podcast wherever you find them. Tell your friends, your mother, your girlfriends, your brothers, your uncles, your fathers about this podcast. Benjamin and I are saying things no one else is saying in the way we say them. Also, you can find me on YouTube and please give me a thumbs up there as well. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you again.